you, Tim. <clears throat> Morning, everyone. Great to have you here. Whether you're tuning in, whether you're in the building here. Um, if you're new, uh, my name's Matt, and a special welcome to you. A uh, little update uh, on, on me. Uh, I'm having uh, gallbladder surgery this Tuesday. You may have heard over Christmas, had some problems with my pancreas and my gallbladder. So they're taking it out uh, Tuesday, so I would appreciate your, your prayers. Uh, apparently, it's a very simple operation. I moved my racquetball game to the end of the week, so we should be fine. Uh, I'm, I'm encouraged uh, by what's going to happen. I think it'll be a good thing uh, for my body. So thank you for that. Uh, it, does, it does, however, impact our time uh, here right now a little bit, and that's because we are going to actually switch up the order of the passages that we're reading through First Peter. You might have noticed Tim said we're in chapter 5, uh, and if you're following along, that's because we skipped uh, the last bit of chapter 4, and that's because uh, uh, David, who's preaching that text, was going to preach this week, but then when the surgery got scheduled, we had to mix everything up. He'd already prepped that passage. So we're taking things a little bit out of order. Blame my gallbladder. But the good news <laughs> is that uh, it's still God's Word, and so we are going to be blessed and encouraged as we read it. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive into First Peter chapter 5. Lord God, thank you. Thank you that anywhere we look into your word, we know we will be blessed. Thank you that you still speak to us through your spirit, through your word, and I pray that would happen now. I pray, please, Lord, that you would minister to us in whatever way we've entered this building, whatever anxieties or weights are upon us, Lord, would you help us to leave them with you and to receive from you uh, the blessing and encouragement and perhaps conviction, perhaps uh, that we need to hear this morning. So in spite of my own sin, I pray you would use this time, use my words, to bless and build up your church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last chapter of First Peter, uh, we're finally at the last chapter. We've been working through First Peter since uh, the fall. And so it's great to be in chapter 5. Uh, and here you see uh, that Peter turns his attention to the leadership of the church. Uh, the whole letter has been to the church, instructions for the church, reminders for us about who we are, about the hope that we have in Christ, uh, about the reality of living in this, this world that's often hostile to our faith. But here, he turns his attention specifically to exhort the elders of the church on how to fulfill their responsibilities. Now, leadership, we know, is important. Good leadership is essential to any organization, any group of people. Selfish Self-serving, bad leadership is always detrimental to any kind of group of people. We, we know that to be the case. Uh, in fact, we happen to be in a cultural moment where bad leadership, kind of coercive, harsh leadership is being called out uh, in sort of an unprecedented way. With the advent of social media now, when anyone, anyone has a bad boss or there's a, someone in leadership who's not leading well, you tend to hear about it. Uh, a couple of examples. This time last year, not sure if you remember, but uh, Julie Payette, who was the Governor General of Canada at the time, she resigned her position because of multiple accusations of creating, uh, she created a toxic work environment. They brought in uh, a consulting firm that, that found, quote, worrisome and disturbing truths behind these accusations. And so Ms. Payette, seeing the writing on the wall, she resigned her post before more damage could be done. But of course, damage had already been done. There were people that were hurt. The... The reputation of the Governor General's office was hurt. Even of Canada was, in a sense, hurt. That's always what happens with bad leadership. People are hurt. Another example, 
is uh, a director, Josh Whedon. Uh, you might uh, know that name. He created uh, the show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He directed the first Avengers, uh, directed Justice League. At one time, he was a beloved figure in the comic sort of entertainment world. But after uh, directing Justice League, uh, this was tweeted by one of the actors, Ray Fisher, called him out on Twitter saying his treatment of the cast and crew of Justice League was gross, abusive, unprofessional, and completely unacceptable. And after he, he brought that out, there's more people that came forward with stories. They were, they were hurt by his leadership, by his, his domineering style. And that's always what happens when people abuse their positions of, of authority. Selfish, prideful leaders are always devastating to the people that they lead. They betray the trust of those who've been put under their care. And this is, this is true. This happens in all sorts of organizations, but it's especially damaging in the church. And that's what Peter addresses here. In fact, uh, many times throughout the New Testament, in the letters to the church, uh, what we see is them dealing with leadership issues because it's, it's an important issue. Something that was a problem back then continues to be a problem to this day. And so as we're going to see, this, this passage is primarily a word to the elders of a local church, but it's very important for the church in general. And, and even if you're a guest here with us, tuning in, just kind of wondering, you know, have questions about the Christian church, like how does it operate? I think this is helpful for us. Important for us to see what is it that, that God expects uh, of his leaders, how they are to conduct themselves. So that's going to be kind of our goal is to answer some questions about leadership. So three questions in particular. Uh, what is an elder? How should elders lead? And how should the church respond to that leadership? That's kind of how, what Peter does in this, in this short passage. So I'll read it and then we'll ask and answer those questions. So here's 1 Peter 5. Beginning in verse 1, he writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that's God's word to us as a church, clearly about uh, leadership. And our first question is, what is an elder? What is an elder? Now, the basic answer uh, from the Bible is that elders are the qualified male leaders that have been given the task of leading the local church to follow Jesus and, and make him known in the world, to basically accomplish the thing that Jesus has called us to do as a church. Uh, we have elders here at Tri-City Church. In case you aren't sure who they are, um, I have their pictures. Uh, I am one of the elders, and Phil, and Jay, and Ben, and Carl. Uh, we were installed as the first uh, elder team of Tri-City Church. Since we're a young church in the spring of, of 2020, this happened. The members of Tri-City Church affirmed us. Uh, the vetting process was done according to the qualifications outlined in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you're wondering what kind of a person uh, should be an elder, you look to 1 Timothy 3 and it's outlined there. The qualifications for an elder. But what you'll notice here is that Peter isn't so much concerned with that. What he's concerned about is the true nature and the proper conduct of an elder. 
And what he says, you can see there clearly, is that elders, if there's one sort of descriptor metaphor, it's a shepherd. He says, you elders, you are to shepherd the flock. Now, it's telling that he didn't use another word. There's other sort of uh, people in authority. He could have used commander, could have used general, could have used manager, magistrate. Uh, In today's, you know, wording CEO, he didn't use anything like that. Now, shepherds, they, they do have command over the sheep, but the distinguishing thing of a shepherd is that they also serve the sheep. They're dedicated to seeing the sheep flourish and grow. And Peter knew this very well. Peter, uh, what he says in the text, is he's a fellow elder, that, that he is a shepherd as well. In fact, he was commissioned by Jesus himself to be an elder slash shepherd of the church. And I want to look to this, this moment where Jesus sort of calls him to this because it, it highlights for us the nature of what it really means to be a leader or what Jesus thinks is important. Now, this is, uh, this is after the cross, after the resurrection. This is after Peter, if you remember, denied Jesus three times. And yet now he hears he's alive. He's sitting with him on the shore of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And, and this is what we get. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So very clearly for Jesus, in establishing the leadership of the church, the shepherding dynamic is what he's thinking of. He's saying to Peter, feed, feed my sheep. This is, this is what it means to care for the flock. That's, that's what you should have in your mind. What's also clear from this interaction is that the root motivation of an elder should be their relationship with Jesus himself. Peter mentions this too in our, in our text, right? He says, I'm a fellow elder. He says, uh, he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he's, he's saying that the two things there in 1 Peter 5. He's saying that he's looking back, right? Looking back to the cross of Jesus. That's the witnessing the sufferings, but also looking forward to the return of Jesus, and the glory to be revealed. So for, for, for Peter, leading in the church is all about the relationship that we have with Jesus himself and the love of Jesus. We saw that when Jesus, that's what he wanted to know. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Then, then you're ready to lead. The love of Christ and having him in the forefront of an elder's mind motivates him to lead with humility and with grace, which are the hallmarks of godly leadership. In fact, Jesus himself is, is the good shepherd. He is the one who, who identifies himself. Look, if you want to see a pattern of leadership, look to me. Uh, look here in John 10, 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what you elders should be doing, to be a good shepherd, one who is faithful and true. You're going to be living a life and leading in a way of sacrifice and grace and humility. That, that's, what a shepherd is, uh, that's what an elder is, a shepherd, one who is faithful. So that's the what. That's the, the nature. But then Peter moves on to the How? If we know that to be true of an elder, what they should be, how then, how then should they lead? That's the second question. How should an elder lead? 
Uh, Peter says they should exercise oversight in verse 2, and then he gives three contra- uh, phrases with contrasts in them for us to understand what kind of leadership an elder should have. So we're going to look at each one because they're really, really helpful. Here's the first one. He says, an elder should lead not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So this is the, the motivation. That's the issue here. Why, why is this elder leading? And in what way is he leading? Is it, it shouldn't be out of compulsion, not obligation. And that, that often happens in the church. That people step into positions of authority because they feel obligated, they feel compelled. Maybe it's because of the expectations of others. Maybe it's a desire for a better reputation. Maybe it's because they love being in control. They feel some sort of compulsion to lead. Maybe it's a sense of duty. I mean, duty, if you think about it, it, I mean, that doesn't seem like such a bad reason to lead. We've been seeing in 1 Peter that all of us are to serve in the church, and there's a sense in which it's the right thing to do. We should do it, which brings about a sense of, of duty then. It's our duty, in a sense, to serve each other. It's what we're being called to by God. But if that's all there is at the heart of our service, then it's going to be a very flimsy service. Uh, the, the, the way, the blessings that will come to others through our service are going to be tainted. And it's going to be problematic because, because if we serve just in that way, what happens when serving gets very, very difficult? What happens when it costs us something? What happens when it's inconvenient or, or aggravating or whatever that may be? That's, that's not good because then we're probably just going to step out. We're going to stop serving or we're going to do a poor job of it. But this is especially a problem if you're a leader in the church and you're leading because of these shallow reasons. You just feel obligated to do it. You're not going to be steadfast, especially when things get difficult. And, and Jesus talks about this. He, he points out the difference between uh, a hired hand who's watching some sheep or a shepherd, a true shepherd. And look at the difference. Here's John 10. He says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. See the difference between duty and love. If you're just being paid to do a job, when that job gets difficult, when a wolf is coming, you're going to be gone. I'm not staying putting my life on the line for this. And the result is that the sheep are harmed. But love, love endures all things. We have to be careful about this dynamic when it comes to all of our relationships. Duty and love, there's a big difference. Uh, think, think of a husband who is serving his wife out of just a feeling of obligation. Eventually, I think his wife might pick up on that. You know, if he's checking the boxes, flowers, short conversation at the end of the day, you have to do that. Just, just trying to get to the thing he really loves to do, whatever that, that may be, you can feel that. In a relationship, all of us have to be careful that we don't treat each other as things to be dealt with rather than people to love. But for those who lead in the church, the fallout from that kind of shallow motivation is devastating. Like people end up feeling hurt, they end up feeling neglected or or abandoned. And so the church needs to know that the elders will be there to lead through adversity, through trials, whatever the cost is personally, they're going to do that not because they have to, but because they want to because they have a genuine love for the people, a love for the church. That's the model that we see in Christ. Look at what he says again here in John 10 about himself. He says again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. See what he's saying there? I I didn't come to to go to the cross because I I had to, because I was obligated, because I felt compelled. I did it because I I wanted to, because I love you. I love the church. I love the people who are mired in sin. I've come to do all of this at great cost out of love. Peter's saying that, that should be the heart's motivation of the leaders of the church because then they'll persevere when it is costly, when it is difficult, when, it, when it's aggravating. So elders should lead uh, in this way, willingly, gladly, lovingly. Uh, the next contrast is, is also very helpful. It says elders should lead not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now that, that phrase, for shameful gain, is a reference to money. He's talking about money there. He's saying basically, look, elders shouldn't be in it for the money. Uh, now it's not wrong for an elder or a pastor to be paid. Uh, that practice happened early on in the church. And Paul affirms this as a good thing for, for certain elders, for there to be staff in a sense, to get a salary. It makes sense that there'd be certain people in the church that have a leadership position that are freed up to care for the church and to prepare instead of going and working. Paul did that tent making, but he's saying it's a good thing. The challenge, of course, is that anytime money is introduced, there is the potential for corruption. And that this has been a problem in the church ever since the the early days. In fact, uh, when it talks about the qualifications for an elder... Uh, that mention money more than once. Uh, here's 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. It says, quite simply, uh, an elder candidate is someone who should not be a lover of money. Very clear. Titus 1, 7. For an overseer, another word for elder, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Same idea. You, you can't have someone who's in a leadership position, who that's, that's in their mind and their heart that they're greedy for gain. They're trying to find some way to make this benefit them materially. You don't want the door open to the temptation that comes when someone is, is a lover of money, especially someone in, in leadership positions in the church. We know, you, we've seen this, that this is devastating within church ministries, parachurch ministries, where there's financial misdealings, where people don't have confidence in the organization because someone at some level has done something financially that lacks integrity or steal, was stealing from the church, all of that just undermines the ministry of the church. But this is also talking, I mean, that's, that's structure, but this is really talking about the heart of an elder, that, that he should not be someone who is, you could say, in it for the lifestyle, in it for the material gain, that they live in such a way that you can see they're, they're people of integrity, that they're not beholden to a certain lifestyle or money or material goods. This is important. This is something that is not always true, sadly. In fact, uh, there's, a, there's an Instagram account, uh, which you may or may not be aware of, uh, that has made it its mission to call out pastors who are um, quite obviously uh, adorning themselves in luxurious goods. So th- what they do, this is uh, an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers, and what they do is they take stills of uh, video just of, on a Sunday morning, some of these, mostly in the States, big churches, and pastors who are preaching the gospel or preaching the Bible, supposedly, and they're wearing clothes that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars, and they want to show the conscience. They want to kind of call them out. So here's a few of the clothes. I, I won't show the pastors, but here's, these are things that were worn 
on a stage, like a church stage on a Sunday morning. So this Givenchy oversized sweatshirt is $1,100, which we should all just be shocked that that exists, but that someone was wearing it. It's crazy. Of course, the, the shoes, the Jordans, uh, retro Jordans, $1,800. Someone's up you know, opening the Bible, preaching with wearing $1,800 shoes. Uh, this Gucci suit is $3,500. Tough to see the prices with the matching loafers, $850. And these, I don't know what those are, boot shoes, whatever they are, they're $1,200. So just the point of the, of the Instagram account is this isn't right. That, that you, how can you be preaching the gospel? The gospel which says, look, our treasure's in heaven. That, that here on this earth, we are to be content. We are to take up our cross, deny ourselves. How can you preach that faithfully? How can people have confidence in your character if you're wearing these kinds of things? This, I think, is what Peter is getting at. That you should be able to look to the leaders of the church and know that they are not slaves to, to lifestyle or beholden to money. It might be a good time to point out, I wore uh, one of my oldest pair of shoes this morning. <laughs> these are $89. Eco's fought them a few years ago in case you're wondering. So, but listen, it, it's, not, uh, it's not, the point isn't that elders and pastors need to be poor. The, the point is that they guard themselves against the love of money. I mean, we all, we all need to do this. First, Peter, uh, First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This, this is serious. This, it puts our faith in peril. If, if we open that door to, to see money as something that we need or a comfort and it takes a, a, a large place in our mind or our heart. This is true for all of us. But as a leader of the church, the harm from this kind of thing is exponentially worse. That's why Peter is, is focusing on this here. Many ministries have been ruined because of greed. Many people have been hurt, turned away, turned off from the church because of it. Elders should be eager to serve because of the joy of serving, not because of the wage, not because of the material benefits. So this is partly why, just so you're aware, in our bylaws, uh, we have it so that our elder team must be made up of the majority non-staff elders, so that you can just know that there's never a situation where a bunch of people being paid by the church are voting on things like wages or that, that kind of thing. That's, we want accountability there. We want to guard that. Uh, also, this is why we are establishing uh, a finance committee made up of some elders, but also lay leaders from the church that have financial expertise. It's also why we have independent auditors that look at our books each year, because this, this text is a call for elders to examine their own hearts individually, but it's also, I think, a call for the church to make sure that there are structures and processes so that the church can have confidence in the financial dealings of the church. And that's what we want for you. So I would just say to you, if you're a member of the church in particular, we, we do send out financial updates a couple times a year, but if ever you have questions, please come. The books are, are open for that. We, we really do want to conduct ourselves with integrity when it comes to our finances. It's clearly important to the Lord and important for our witness to the community. So that was the second thing, that elders should lead, not for, for greedy gain. The third contrast he gives is this. Elders should lead, he says this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So probably the only thing that corrupts us as human beings more than money is power. And the challenge is that the role of an elder is one of authority, that, that it is an authoritative position, but the abuse of this authority if, if, as an elder, you think to yourself that I have this power so that I can wield it as I would like, so that I can 
boss people around or I can advance my agenda for the church, then, then that person has completely misunderstood the nature of godly leadership. Overbearing, domineering leadership uses people rather than serving them. And it's one of the most damaging things in the community of God's people. We see it from even in the Old Testament times that God calls out those leaders who are leading in this way. Look at here. This is Ezekiel 34, verses 4 and 5. God speaking to those who were leading Israel at the time. He says, with force and harshness you have ruled them so they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. Now that's figurative language. I don't think it means that actually the people of God were torn apart by wild beasts. But what it's saying is that when there is harsh leadership, it always leads to people being hurt, to people being put in vulnerable positions. Because, because when you're abused, taken advantage of in this way, it opens the door to being easy prey for the enemy to come in with discouragement, doubt, or whatever it may be to, to actually harm our faith. This is... This is devastating the church. This is the opposite of what elders are supposed to be doing, which is to, to build up, to care for, to, to bring healing in light of the gospel for all those who walk through the doors. Rather than hurting and, and abusing or taking advantage of relationships. There's a, a podcast that came out this year that is uh, dedicated to examining this, the fallout of, of this kind of leadership in one church in particular. And that church was uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Uh, you may have heard of it. Uh, it was planted or started in 1996 and closed down in 2014. Uh, Don and I, uh, we went to Mars Hill fairly often. Like when we were down in Seattle, we would go there. Mark Driscoll is the pastor. Started listening to him. There was a, it was a church in the early days in particular that had strong theology, a compelling vision. They were in a, in a city where Hardly anyone went to church, and yet a lot of people were hearing the gospel being saved. It was a ministry that we would look to when we were entering ministry and saying, man, it really seems like God is at work here. And yet it all fell apart because of this issue, because of domineering leadership. Over the years, more and more accusations would come out against Mark Driscoll himself and the other leadership at, at Mars Hill about this kind of coercive leadership, that there, there was harsh it was argumentative, it was abusive, there were letters and blogs, eventually a formal review process. But in the end, uh, Mark Driscoll just, he resigned and he left the church. And as you listen to some of the interviews from people who were around then, especially those near the core of the, of the, of the church, they, they still feel deeply hurt. Like years later, there are people that haven't set foot in a church building. They were so grieved, so hurt by by. These people were leading them, supposedly leading them in the ways of God. They were working together for the, for the things of God, and yet they were, they were used. They were abandoned. See, that's what happens with this kind of leadership. Bold leadership is one thing, but severe leadership is another. And, and the, the, the challenge here, again, is that elders do at times need to lead with authority, need to speak hard words into our lives, need to confront sin, need to, need to call us to, to follow hard things that, that God is calling us to. There, there can be very strong language if there's a context of humility and love. That's what Peter is saying here, that it should not be domineering, self-serving. It, it should be from leaders who recognize that all authority that they have is borrowed authority. It, it's 
it's not in them. It's not because they're great leaders, not because they have something special about them. It's, it's borrowed from the Lord. And the way you can see that in a leader is if they are making sure that everything that they say and do is rooted in a higher authority, in particular, the word of God. Like if you can see in your, in your leadership that they're, they're constantly pointing back to this is, this is what God is calling us to. This is the way in which we interact with each other. And you see evidence of, of that person trying to live that way. Then the love should come through loud and clear, even if sometimes the words are, are strong words. I want to point you to a couple of other verses about Jesus, because we see here his, his humility and his, um, his love. Matthew 20, verse 28, that says, The Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Philippians 2, 8, 9 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, what Peter's saying is, elders, you should not be domineering. You should be examples of this. Like this, this is the pattern. This is what people should see in you, a willingness to lay down your life for the sake of the flock, for those under your care. So that as people follow you, they're led closer and closer to Jesus. Now, we should note, interestingly, uh, Peter, after giving these kind of contrasting sort of formulas and, and really a call to humility, he also uh, gives sort of an encouragement to the elders. Or he says this in verse 4. He says, And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He says there is a reward for those who lead faithfully. Now, if you're wondering, what is this crown? Like, does this mean that in heaven, those who served as elders are going to be walking around with these big crowns, lots of flashy bling on their heads? I, I don't think that's what it means exactly. We're not sure exactly what it means. It's clearly a reward of some kind. But notice this. This is, uh, this is helpful. Revelation 4.10, again, speaking about elders and crowns. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. This is clearly the elders before the throne of God. And what do they do with their, their crowns? They cast their crowns before the throne. So we don't even get to keep them, just so you know, okay? The whole point here is, is the same uh, dynamic that exists for all the things that we are given by God. It's given to us to enjoy, to be a blessing to others, and ultimately to glorify God. Right? The gifts that were given, we saw last week, it's for the good of the church, but ultimately to point people back to God. All of the accomplishments, even our faith, it's a testimony to the power of God. So the, the heart of a true elder finds joy in serving the church in humility and love. And any reward that he has given is just more opportunity to praise God for his grace and for his love. So if there's one word that we would attach to shepherd, right, we're to be shepherds, those who are elders, but also to lead in humility. That, that's what we see here. It's a call to humility. And so I would just say on behalf of the Tri-City Elders, could you please pray for us? This is, this is our desire. Our desire is to be able to lead in this way. But we need your prayers. We, we need for God to humble us daily and to work on our own hearts as, as pride wells up or whatever it may be. This is, this is our goal. And I would say, if, if you see in us evidence of these kinds of negative leanings or, or leading in certain ways, please come and talk to us. We, we would like to address it. Bring others, bring those who've seen it. Talk to your community leaders. We want to make sure that we are keeping short accounts and that we are striving for this and we, we need your help. We need your prayers.
Now, you notice that Peter ends uh, by speaking about how the church then should respond to this kind of leadership, which makes sense. He's just sort of made an argument for a humble leadership. And now the question is, well, then how should the church respond to this leadership? And the answer is, is humble submission. Look at verse 5. Likewise, he says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, the first part there is addressed specifically to the young. Not exactly sure why, except that probably the younger you are, the harder it is to submit, right? I remember that. The younger I was, the more confrontational, the more rebellious, and so that's part of it. But he's not saying here that only the young are to submit. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. There he's speaking to the whole church. So the relationship here, the dynamic is uh, elders are to lead with humility and the church is to submit with humility. The two go together perfectly. The question I think though that often comes up in our minds is, is okay, I, I see that. I see that call to submission, but to what extent? Like to what extent are we to submit to church leadership? Especially if maybe you're new to the church, you're wondering, well, what, you know, how far does this go? I've heard stories uh, from people who've been in churches where they were expected to go to the church elders uh, for all sorts of life decisions, like, like who they should marry, what job they should take, whether they should move or not. There was just this sense that, you know, everything, you need to go to the elders, not for counsel, but, you know, for the, the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And let me just be very clear, that's not what we see in the New Testament. Elders are not called to micromanage the church. Elders are called to equip the church. For the sake of ministry, the goal is that from the ministry of a given church to the leadership, that as the church be able to go out into the world filled with the Spirit, with the gospel on our lips, being effective and fruitful. That, that is the goal. However, as part of that, there are definitely times when elders do need to rebuke church members or discipline church members. But what we see in the New Testament is that in these cases, it's, it's always issues of blatant, unrepentant sin that threatens the unity of the church, threatens the testimony of, of the church. You see Paul engaging with this a lot through his letters, especially with the, the church in Corinth. So I want, I want to just give you one example to see how it is that Paul speaks to this church because he's calling out uh, an issue of division. They were fighting over which leader they liked the best, uh, Apollos, a guy named Apollos or Paul. And so Paul writes to them and says, look, this, is, this isn't right. This is pulling you apart. But look at how he says it. Here's 1 Corinthians 3. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So what he means there is all this fighting, he's clearly calling out some sin that is present. He's saying this, is, this isn't in the spirit. This isn't spiritual maturity that we're talking about. It's immaturity. And you see, look at the language he uses. Infants in Christ, he calls them. I'm pretty sure that there's someone who was hearing this letter in the church in Corinth that was like, what did he call us? Did he just, did he just call us babies? I'm pretty sure he just called me a baby. I'm done with this. I'm tired. I'm not, I'm not going to stand for this. Someone telling me I'm immature, I'm out of here. That's, that's the temptation, right, for the church in responding to the leadership 
that God has installed an elder here rebuking the church and the temptation. I think we all feel this at times when someone's telling us something that maybe we don't want to hear. We don't like the way they're saying it. Is I'm done. I'm out. I'm not going to submit. I'm going to eject. So how do we, how do we prevent that from happening? Or how can we do this in a way that we aren't tempted or aren't just going to say, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave? Well, part of the answer, the biggest part of the answer, I think, is what Peter's already told us, right? When there are humble leaders, like you have confidence in the leadership of a local church that you can see in them, you've seen over, over an amount of time just the willingness to sacrifice and the humility and the love, if you see that in your leaders, then you can also see them as a tool in the hand of God. Something that God would, would wield in your life to, to mold and shape us even in ways that we don't think we need to be molded or shaped. This is the dynamic that God is calling us to in terms of humility of leadership and humility of submission. And let me just give you one quick story about how that happened in my life. I think I've mentioned a couple times in the lead up to planting Tri-City Church that it was a bit of a rocky road at times. And uh, one of the, the bumps was, uh, I was at Westside Church at the time, not an elder, not in leadership in that way, but felt very called. Don and I went through a whole process, and we were like, you know what, we really feel called to plant a church in the Tri-Cities. And Westside happened to be a church that loved planting churches. I mean, they'd planted a number of churches, a number of campuses, so I started to talk about this call I felt and come and you know, approach the leadership and say, I think, you know, I think maybe I'm called to plant this church. In fact, I really feel convicted about it, and I would talk and talk, and the response I got was not overly enthusiastic, I'll tell you. The response was, mm, we're, not, we're not so sure about that. Be like, what? And so time went on. I, I kept pushing. Finally, I got to the point where Don, we were like, we, we really feel this is God's call. And so I found myself in a meeting where I was saying, look, I think this is what God is calling me to do. And they finally said, look, Matt, if that's what you think God is calling you to do, then you should resign and go and do it. And I was, I was this close to saying, then I resign. God is with me. I know that God's called me. I'm going to go and do this. This is a good thing. Why wouldn't you be part of this? But praise God, I didn't. Because it wasn't the right time. And I couldn't see it at the time. Even the elders, if you talk to them, they, they didn't know why exactly. None of us had this on the horizon, that there was a building in Procoquitlam, that there were three churches that might work together. None of us knew any of that. All they knew is that they, were, they felt led by the Spirit. It wasn't right. And by the grace of God, I was convicted about what I believe about church leadership. Because in that moment, I had, to, I had to think, look, if the Spirit is at work in them and in me, then, then if one has to give, it's going to be me because they're my, they're my leaders. I'm called to submit. And by God's grace, he humbled me in that and enabled all of this to happen. And, and what I'm saying is that that dynamic of a humility, of a trusting in a leadership and then being shaped by God, that, that's the regular rhythm of the church. It's not always that intense but we have to be open to the fact that that is what God is calling us to. In fact, I want to read just as we close. Look at how Paul speaks about um, the church, about him as a leader. And he's, this is right after the passage we just read. Here's verses 5 to 9. Remember Paul and Apollos, the fight? Here's what he says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants... Or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. See what he's saying? It's not us. Not me, Paul, or Paul. We're nothing special. God just chose to use us. And he's using us for your benefit if we are humble. If you are humble, God will grow us together. He will actually build his church. But it requires requires a depth of trust in the word of God that God actually knows what he's doing. It also requires us, us all to be humble. It's what it said in our text, that we are clothed with humility towards one another. If that happens, then God can use us to, to shape and, and encourage and sometimes confront each other in sin. And, and I just got to say, as a point of application, I think what we need to say is, Lord, have mercy on us. Because we, we can't do this. There's so much sin in all of our hearts that at any moment, any day, this could just explode and fall apart. I could say something that slightly offends you. You could say something that slightly offends me and then it's all gone. We need God's help to be humbled in our own sin. And, and to, to submit to the authority of God's word, first and foremost. And then to move forward, fulfilling the roles that God has for us, trusting that he will use it, he will use it for our good. So I'm going to close by praying for that for us. Lord Jesus, we do need your continued mercy and grace that you would, that you would humble us as a people. Lord, I pray especially for those who are Tri-City Church members Lord, called to submit to the leadership of this church. Lord, to imperfect men who are just doing our best, but our best is filled with, with sin. And Lord, we need you. We need you, please, to, to shape us and conform us. Please, Holy Spirit. I, I pray for those of us in leadership that, that even the smallest, just as pride rears its ugly head, that it would be crushed under the weight of your, of your conviction and that we would be faithful in that. I pray, Lord, that there would be a willingness and 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 a motivation that's rooted in love for you and love for the church. And I pray for us as the church, there would be humility that we receive from you everything that you have for us. And Lord, that pride or division or whatever it might be, petty offense, Lord, would not take root in our hearts. And that we would be eager and open to how you're going to lead us according to the, to the structures you've set out, according to the, the people you've called to different roles within the church, Lord. Lord, all of us need your help. And so I pray, Lord, that, that by your grace and by your power, we would enjoy fruitful ministry together, that each of us would grow closer to Christ and that we would help others in our community to, to know you as Savior and Lord through this ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.